Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from Brooklyn, New York this week. And my guest is in the nation's the U.S. nation, the nation's capital. She is the Deputy Regional Director for Southern and East Africa at the National Democratic Institute, where she has successfully implemented a wide range of democracy programming across the African continent. In her 20-year tenure at NDI, she supported electoral integrity and political party strengthening programs in Angola, Mozambique, and Zimbabwe. She also coordinated several large international election observation missions in Ghana, Nigeria, and Liberia, as well as serving in NDA offices in Ghana, Guinea-Bissau, Nigeria, South Africa, and Zimbabwe. Prior to joining NDI, she was a program specialist at the Africa America Institute, designing and implementing cross-cultural exchange programs for African activists in the areas of conflict resolution, good governance, citizen engagement, and human rights. Jamima Neves Barlow, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Florence. Very happy to be here with you and your listeners. Yay. Yes. So let's jump right in. Where are you from? Well, I am Cape Verdean. Mm -hmm. I was born in Angola. I grew up and still live in the United States. I'm a child of immigrants. And for those of you who may not know, Cabo Verde, or Cape Verde. It's a small country of 10 islands located off of West Africa, and it has a very small population of around 500,000. So the Cape Verdean diaspora is almost double the size of those in country. And so there's mm. a huge Cape Verdean diaspora population in the U.S., particularly in New England, and that's where I grew up in Massachusetts. Okay. And where are you local? I am local in the D.C. metropolitan area. I live in Maryland, but I work in the district of Washington, D.C. Okay. And what is your craft? Yes. So (laughs) my craft, um, I laugh at this because to this day, my family and parents really can't tell anybody what I do because it's a little bit amorphous, but I'm a deputy director at one of the world's premier democracy and governance organizations, a democracy international development specialist with an Africa lens. I've spent most of my career working in some way to support the little d democracy in countries across the continent. And I would say that my work is really about helping people have a say in how they're governed. Mm, mm-hmm. That's that's a big task. Yeah, that's a big task. So let's let's take a step back. Let's get a bit of more information about how you came to be in this role that you are. So you mentioned that your family is from Cape Verde and you grew up in the Boston area. Tell us a little bit about how, how that shaped the, the Jamima that I'm speaking with now. Well, Florence, that's really an excellent question because it had a lot to do with the career path that I chose coming from a very small country, being an immigrant, being a minority immigrant in this country, Mm -hmm. as well as being a woman, I fundamentally understood what it feels like and the importance of representation and participation, which I didn't see a lot of, of people of color just growing up in the school systems, et cetera. I asked a lot Mm -hmm. of questions and that really helped drive me to learn more about 
Africa, where I'm from, and to try to, in some way, help. But that took learning about myself in this country and how we're all interconnected. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did your family spend any time in Cape Verde? before when in your adolescence before you became an adult not not in my adolescence like my father traveled mm -hmm. a few times mm -hmm. um, we actually brought my mother back to Cape Verde for the first time for her 80th birthday oh wow um so it had been a long time like decades yeah. since yeah. she was last there yeah so it was an important opportunity to like reconnect but I had actually been to Cape Verde back and forth since graduate school so okay. um, to me okay. it was something that I really aspired to do and I have two sisters and I'm the only one who's who's been back um, okay okay so you're you're the explorer I yes. Guess. I've always yeah. been the explorer. Um, always had a passion for travel. And mm -hmm. growing up, it was really important for me to try to find a career path that would help me marry um, mm -hmm. my travel passion, as well as trying to, you know, make the world a better place in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I get it. So so now let me ask you why the where? So you grew up in the Boston area and then, you, you know, you have this international background family of immigrants, a lot of times our, our families of immigrants want to keep you close. You know, they don't want you to go away, especially depending on your birth order. So how did you come to be living and working and playing where you live now? Well, I knew that I wanted to do international work of some mm -hmm. shape or form. And it's interesting because there were many points in my I think education trajectory where I really didn't know what I wanted to do other than leaving the New England Cape Verdean enclave um, <laughs> to, to, to do more and see more. Yeah. Um, but with my master's in African studies from the Ohio State University, I knew that I wanted to deepen my practice in African support. Mm -hmm. And it was really either New York or Washington, D.C. in the U.S. Right. The centers to really do sound international work. And mm -hmm. honestly, it was a monetary decision for me. The cost of living is cheaper in DC than it is mm -hmm. in New York. Mm -hmm. I came out here and I really had to hustle. I knew I had an Africa passion. I knew that I didn't want to work um, in the private sector. And I also had some hesitancy about doing any direct work with the U.S. government. And so mm. to me, the sweet spot was trying to find an NGO that had some way, shape, or form um, involvement in Africa. And so that helped me sort of narrow down my focus. And that's where I landed at the Africa America Institute and then eventually to NDI, where I am now. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about AAI. Like I have, since moving to Ghana, been more aware of them and, and meeting more people who've gone through the program. Yeah. So tell us more about who they serve and how they are impactful, particularly for Africans and African-Americans. Well, AI um, was, is very unique in this arena. There are several organizations in the U.S. that provide support to what we call um, international visitors mm -hmm. or international diplomats that we support. But all the other organizations focus globally, and AAI was the only organization that focused exclusively on the continent. Mm -hmm. And it's a state, U.S. State Department sponsored program, the mm -hmm. International Visitors Program, and there was also like a Fulbright component as well too. Mm -hmm. And really, it's just about creating pathways and intersections of of 
like-minded people from the continent with practitioners here in the United States. Uh, it's not about trying to import a U.S. way or a U.S. model of doing things, mm-hmm. but really to show a broad range of options to help deepen whatever practice of the specialists we were working with from the continent. Mm-hmm. So essentially what happens is um, in any given country, obviously there's a U.S. embassy and they have like a list or a roster of citizens that they want to engage in who they feel are like leaders who could benefit from exposure to a wide array of of opportunities. And so it could be in the education arena, it could be in governance arena, politics. And so essentially what we would do at AAI was we would get the bios of the specialists. We would then design a program. And so for instance, I worked on a project in Ro- for a group of Rwandans who were looking at um, peace and conflict methods. And this was after the, the genocide, right? And it was a group of, of people who were um, Hutus and Tutsis. We didn't know who was who but Mm. it was all about like community conflict resolution. So we sent them like across the U.S., to look at like small scale community resolution, um, large scale, you know, I think we sent them to California to look at, you know, how people mediate with gangs. I think we sent them to um, somewhere down south where it was about like religious differences. And it's just about exchanging ideas to extract what is most useful for you to bring back into your context mm. um, and to really build networking. And so oftentimes when people go through the AAI programs, they're still in touch with the friends and the contacts that they may here in the U.S. like years ago. And so right. it's really about citizen-to-citizen diplomacy. Mm, mm-hmm. So it's available to graduates, right? So not undergrads, but graduates, right? So it's a graduate-level program? Actually, it's for professionals, really. Oh, it's for professionals. Um, okay. I don't think we've ever done anything with students. That's a great question. We've done mm-hmm. things with professors, elementary teachers, but okay. it's really for like professionals. Um, sometimes okay. it's with like police force people. So it okay. really runs the gamut. Like okay. agriculture, we've done several on agriculture as well too. Okay. Um, I think it was one arid country where we sent them to Arizona, et cetera, so they could see how wow, water practices. Yeah. So it really varies, but it's not it's not for like young people. Okay. Right. So it's more career professionals who are looking for, like you said, the the networking and the career um, professional development side of things on a dipl- diplomatic level. Absolutely. And to, and to try to prevent like the brain drain, right, that we often have mm-hmm. on the continent. And mm-hmm. we want people with expertise to stay and develop and do these things. And so this program is a way of helping to sort of expand their repertoire, but hopefully yeah. people return back and continue right. to do their, their good work. Right, 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 right. Okay. So that was your AAI experience. So how did you then find yourself transitioning to democracy? I mean, it kind of, it makes perfect sense, but tell us more about how you made that transition. Sure. Actually, it was really interesting because as people came over through AI and they had all of these, you know, challenges with the work that they're doing. Oftentimes the root cause of some of these things are just lack of good governance Mm -hmm. or really insufficient politics in those countries that kind of prevent Mm -hmm. like participation, et cetera. And so for me, I would find that many times I would actually send some of our AI visitors over to where I work now at NDI to talk about the democracy angle of whatever it is that they're working on. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was a draw. As I think through like what, you know, my passions are or what drives me, it's often things that really, really bother, I think, Mm -hmm. me. And one of the things 
that is, it's injustice mm-hmm. and um, bad governance or poor leadership in some of these countries. And so yeah. that's what really drove me to become involved in this line of work, which mm-hmm. is connected, but, you know, a bit different. Mm-hmm. 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 So you, you make a good point of bad governance and, and poor leadership. What are the tenets of what you see as bad governance? I mean, because democracy... I think there's, you know, specific tenets of what democracy is, but you being in an organization that that is your focus, what do you define as democracy? And then in that same vein, what is good governance? Sure. Um, Excellent questions, Florence. Democracy is really about changing the balance of power Mm -hmm. and having citizens having a say in how they're governed, right? Mm -hmm. So it really then goes back to representation and participation. Oftentimes what we find in closed societies or in governments that are autocratic or governed by dictators is that all the decisions are housed within like a very few and it it prevents people from really having any of their concerns or priorities addressed. And I would also add that Democracy, especially now, can be almost a polarizing term. It's definitely not a perfect system of governments, but it is probably the best one that's out there because its fundamental principles are about people having a say, and not just men, but also women. One of the issues that we face in so many of the places where we work is that There are these hierarchies of power, right, where, you know, the predominant ethnic group or because it's a patriarchal society, you know, it's very, very top down in terms of how governance is structured, who can speak up, who can participate. And so um, it's really a way of trying to, like, level the playing field in terms of participation. And by participation, it's more than just casting a ballot on election day, right? Mm-hmm. It's about holding your elected leaders accountable. And a lot of leaders actually don't like that part of about a democracy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't want to be held mm-hmm. accountable. They mm-hmm. just want to be able to like run them up. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is it's about like empowering citizens to engage. And sometimes in these countries, it's a learning curve, right? Yeah. Or if you're from civil society or NGO community, it's often seen as combative. And so we try to help diffuse that, find common ground, right? Ultimately, if you're in elected office, you should hopefully want the best for your country. And that should involve hearing from the women, hearing from the marginalized groups, the smaller ethnic groups, or those that persons with disabilities, youth. You know, everyone has a say in their societies and oftentimes governments that are not democratic are opposed to those uh, having those voices be involved. Yeah. So what percentage of governments across the globe are now considered democratic? That's a good question. I don't know that off the top of my head, Mm -hmm. but there is a democracy index that I can look up and get back to you on um, because there's an annual tracking of that. And you'll be surprised. I mean, there are some countries that kind of fall off the radar. What we see a lot now is what we call like democratic backsliding. Yeah. Countries that had been doing well, just, you know through change in leadership are going backwards. And right. so right. And you and one of the bellwethers for that is just how journalists are treated, right? Mm-hmm. If all of a sudden mm-hmm. access to information is being constrained. Mm-hmm. And with this COVID pandemic, like that right. is showing a lot of auto 
democratic tendencies are starting to show now right because some leaders are using this as an opportunity to curtail people's rights right so yeah right so i know this is maybe not necessarily related to your work in democracy but how do you reconcile in democracy the economics of social development economic you know because i feel like the things that erode democracy are economic and democracy is is a political governance construct while you know we have capitalism or socialism or what have you that is theoretically separate and apart but we we somehow kind of conflate them in our contemporary society that's actually very relevant to, mm-hmm. to the work. And it's a, it's a really good question because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, um, it needs to be removed from being just like a theoretical concept, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we find, you know, when you talk to people at the grassroots level, yeah. it's about the politics of the stomach is what we say, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And ultimately for democracy to really deliver, it goes back to the uh, UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone has a right to, you know, adequate food, shelter, mm-hmm. education, pursuit of joy and happiness, yeah. you know, all of that. And if you're not able to maintain your family or uh, make a living wage or, you know, have access to clean water, et cetera, then you're going to question whether this democratic system you have in country X. Y or Z is really worth it. And so mm-hmm. the two are very, very close together. And there have been studies that show that democratic countries overall have a better socioeconomic base than those that do not, mm-hmm. because it goes back to accountability, right? Mm-hmm. If in a functioning democracy, right, we have terms like electoral democracy, where right. just because a country has an election every four years, it's almost like a rubber stamp process because yeah, the opposition exactly. is jailed or, you know, mm-hmm. it's not real opposition, it's government funded to mm-hmm. have a facade, you know, mm-hmm. and so there are other things that can kind of get in the way of that. But ultimately, in countries that are more closed and more aligned with dictatorships, there's a much, much wider gap between the haves and the have-nots because those systems lack accountability and Mm -hmm. transparency. Mm -hmm. And that's a really big tenant Mm -hmm. in democracies as well, too. And and Mm -hmm. part of the work that what we do with citizens and also with parliamentarians, because depending on what project or country that we're in, sometimes we focus with just citizen groups, helping them with advocacy Mm -hmm. and conducting like research, right? And research in the sense of public opinion polling, like that's a powerful tool Mm -hmm. that is not used often enough. And on the continent, I have to give a shout out to Afrobarometer, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, um, housed in CDD Ghana in Accra. And the ability to speak to citizens directly about what their goals and aspirations are for democracy, having that information and then going back to elected officials to say, look, these are the policies that people want. Or overall, like most people on the continent do support democracies. However, they're not happy with the way democracy yeah. is delivering. Yeah. And that's something that is a big push in, in this arena as well. Like we always have to evaluate ourselves as democracy implementers. How yeah. are we helping democracy to deliver in these countries? And really we're there to do background support because the real work is done by the people on the ground, mm. members of parliament, members mm-hmm. of political parties, especially political parties, because they have like a hard road to hoe because there are a lot of impressions of, you know, how political parties should behave and actually do behave. And so we work with them as well, too, so that, again, you can use data to find out, okay, what do citizens want to see in their government? And 
as a political party, how can we put together a policy platform that appeals to people so that they can vote for us yeah. instead of voting on strong men or because yeah. you're passing out bags of rice or T-shirts or money or et cetera. Um, those things are so ephemeral, right? And then mm -hmm. ultimately you're left with the same shoddy roads, lack of schools, mm -hmm. et cetera, that you had always. And so it's really helping people connect these dots so that they can have their agency to, you know, have a better country and a better lives for themselves. I mean, that's what we all want at the end of the day. Right, 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 right. It's interesting that you, the, the, the exact things that you just pointed out, the rice, giving of rice bags, the, you know, the kind of patronage types of giveaways that parties use or elected use is something that Recently, I saw on one of my social feeds where Ghana is now, and you you have experience in Ghana, but Ghana is now in this debate around fix the country or fix yourself. Like when I, before I left, that was the debate, fix your country or fix yourself. Is it because of the people that we are in this state or is it because our political leaders are not focused on us? And so the youth have recently just started to rise. And so one the clip of this was youth throwing the rice bags back into the MP's truck when he came to give out rice and said, fix the country. We don't just want rice bags anymore. So, right. so I feel like their parents age, they were the give me age, you know, they were like, we'll take it. We don't care. We know. And the, and they were the, he's a strong man. We'll stay, still stay with it. So to a large degree, I feel like the blessing that we have now is social media to some extent, particularly with the youth, because they're now seeing we don't have to take it. If they're uprising over here, like I thought that after the Arab Spring, Sub-Saharan Africa would have been a lot quicker to have started to uprise. You know, I think that was, we're coming on like six, seven years ago, if I'm not mistaken. And now we're starting to see in Nigeria, you know, and in Ghana and a number of countries where we're holding people to account, particularly on human rights. But there's a lot of pushback. And then you start to see these things where the media is silenced. You know, a lot of what we what we thought we saw, you know, the president of Nigeria silenced Twitter for a moment recently. So with that in mind and, and kind of looking back at your work in in Africa specifically, you know, your your impressions, what are some of the tools and what are some of the techniques that you see being more effective and less effective in getting to this fix the country concept for, for young people? Lawrence, that is excellent, <laughs> excellent points that you raise. And just to get back to the protests, um, these social movements really that are really coming up, right? And, and we see it not just on the continent, but like globally. globally. And, it's, and it is led by youth and yeah. oftentimes led by women, you know, mm -hmm. Sudan two years ago, right? Yes. I mean, South Africa recently as yeah. well, you know, they're still mm -hmm. having backlash about things and, and people are feeling frustrated and they feel like the normal challenge, uh, channels of dialogue aren't even there because they're not being heard and then mm -hmm. there are more people go to the streets. And mm -hmm. so like, that's a problem, right? Yeah. Um, but it's also an opportunity for elected leaders to really step up and listen or if they do the opposite, then, you know, then these countries remain in further crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Because these fractures that were already there um, grow deeper. You also made an excellent point about social media and technology. I think that's an area that we work in a lot more now, too. Um, mm -hmm. We call it DemTech, Democracy and Technology, mm -hmm. right? Because it is a tool, right? It's not the answer. It's not a silver bullet. 
And we also know that there are some inherent difficulties with that as well. Right. Um, especially, again, if you look at the mm-hmm. continent, who has cell phones with Wi-Fi? Oftentimes it's the men. Oftentimes it's those people who are living in urban areas, not yeah. in rural areas. Mm-hmm. Um, in most of these countries, the majority of the population are outside of the urban areas. And exactly. so uh, there's that divide. And in terms of who has the money to actually purchase these things, et cetera. So that mm-hmm. also kind of controls yeah. you know, who can participate in these things. And so right. these WhatsApp discussions, et cetera, there is a big concern about misinformation and disinformation in social media, right? Mm-hmm. Because it can be used for good or it can be used for evil some, mm-hmm. in some mm-hmm. um, cases, you know, and we've seen that where, you know, photos from 10 years ago in another event right. shown in another country so to agitate groups of people, right? Yeah. Um, Facebook has to have greater responsibility in these things. And right. so like they're being more involved in trying to be more socially responsible mm-hmm. with how people use these tools. But it, it, it's a Let great opportunity. You, do, you have, do you have close relationships with the social media companies at all? Uh, we do. We have, there's uh, networks actually now that are, that are formed with the social media companies okay. and some sometimes governments, but then that can be tricky because yeah. if Facebook is asked to shut down in country X and it does that, that really sets a bad precedent. And, exactly. and the tool that's been used even in the past like year and a half, pretty frequently on the continent. Yeah. Um, frighteningly frequently, actually. Yeah. You know, things are happening at, at Swatini as well. And right. the, first point of call almost is, is to unplug people so that they yeah. can't communicate and they can't yeah. organize. Right? right. But yeah, I mean, these companies, these social media companies, Twitter, all of them have a huge responsibility to play in this. And so it's about raising awareness with them so mm-hmm. that they realize the impact of their work and so mm-hmm. that they can be more proactive about shutting down false accounts, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, and holding people accountable as well, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, there's um, a lot of dialogue. And DI is part of um, a few networks that work with Facebook and others to try to shed a little more light on this and hold them more responsible. And so it's ongoing. It's an ongoing discussion, but it's right. it's, it's here to stay, right? I mean, yeah. social media is only going to get further expanded and and more access will be used. And so because it, it can be used for such like nefarious purposes, as well as for positive purposes, it, it can't just be like willy nilly. But yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. like there's to be a focus. And I'm sorry, I interrupted you when you were responding. So <laughs> I don't remember. What I was saying. Uh, no problem. No problem. Where we were going was in your your on the ground experience. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. So in terms of tools that work. Mm-hmm. So Definitely, there's a side that, well, generically, it's called like capacity building, right? Mm-hmm. But again, this goes back to giving people agency, not doing for them, but ha- helping them do for themselves, right? And a lot of that, like, for instance, if it's about increasing women leaders, right? A lot of that means you first have to agree and want to be comfortable with um, running for office, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a huge step. And mm-hmm. there are big cultural impediments to that still to this day in 2021. You know, if you're single, then you're targeted and labeled as XYZ. If you're married, then the expectation is you can't run for office because you need to stay home and cook and tend to the children, et cetera. Mm -hmm. With social media, you know, you're attacked viciously, Mm -hmm. viciously. And there are studies on that as well, too, that uh, women who run for office have an increase and more heinous attacks against them than than men running for office. Mm -hmm. Like that's 
that's just out there. Right. So you have all of these hurdles, but then it goes back to representation. And so it's given women the tools to like NDIs develop some certain tools that you can do like an assessment, like a, a checklist mm-hmm. of, you know, where you live, what you do, et cetera. And at the end of the process, it'll tell you what your risk matrix is. And then it outlines steps of what you could do to protect yourself and to make sure that you have the resources at play so that you know what you're getting into when you run for office. Oh, wow. That's cool. Sometimes it's public speaking. So we'll do like a series of public speaking skills, mm-hmm. confidence building. How do you fundraise? Because that's mm-hmm. a huge impediment as well, too. Like who mm-hmm. normally has access to resources? Mm-hmm. And so all of these things, how do you network? You know, how do you, you know, like the concept of door to door campaigns is still foreign in a lot of places. Yeah. And, you know, but having that person to person contact where people can hear from you in terms of how you have a better policy, right? Because it goes back to the old way of, of politics, which is, you know, the bags of rice or, you know, promising to dig a borehole here, etc. Mm-hmm. But people consistently complain that with the election cycle, politicians will come, will campaign. You vote, have the elections, and you won't see them again for another four or five years until the next election cycle. And so we try to work with like the supply and the demand side Mm -hmm. so that parliamentarians or other elected officials know that their responsibility also is to those who voted them in. And Mm -hmm. therefore, (laughs) if you ignore your community, then best believe when the next election cycle comes, you will not be voted back in. And that's why you see such high turnovers as well on every election cycle when, you know, people don't take the time to go to have that constant communication. And -hmm. the idea of having town halls, we help parliamentarians like organize with their committees, like town halls. So they go back to the communities and talk about a certain topic, et cetera. So it really depends. And, you know, sometimes we'll see really good successes in these areas, but Mm -hmm. in this line of work, it's sometimes difficult to see impact right away because it's not humanitarian. It's not flying in and providing antiretrovirals to a community and knowing that, you know, the AIDS rate has dropped Um, when it's democracy strengthening. It's like a slow building process. Yeah. And as we know, the whole tenets of democracy, it's not, it's not a destination. It's a, it's a pathway, right? Right. So it's it's a journey. Yeah. And we never quite get there. And we see here in the United States, we're not different. Exactly. No, yeah. it's always being challenged. It's yeah. always being challenged. Yeah. And so so yeah. in the context, we know that, you know, colonization had a huge impact on governance and governance concepts in Africa and even in South America and around the, around the globe. So when you think about some of the, the hurdles that you may have experienced with elections and things like that, what role does colonization play overall and more culturally, right? Because when you come from a culture that everyone doesn't have a say, but everyone believes in this leader. And so you have that as your, your framework that still exists, right? So in most, most African, I'll speak for my West African experience. Most of West African cultures still have a chief. They still have, you know, their whole chieftaincy structure that now is parallel and oftentimes in some ways usurped because of the new democracy. And it becomes even more challenging because land rights are now part of that conversation. So what are some of the techniques that you or or might even suggest in terms of marrying and modifying what we, we in the West figure is like very straightforward democracy for success in Africa? 
I mean, it's really about adaptations, right? Because mm-hmm. nothing is like permanent in time, right? You know, mm-hmm. culture changes through the course of time and democracy writ large is not like one size fits all in the Mm -hmm. sense, Mm -hmm. other than the basic tenets of it, right? Sure. And there are ways and there are successful examples of communities and groups that have respect for the traditional structures, Mm -hmm. but still allows for the democratic pathways. Like Mm -hmm. in some of these places, it's against the tenets of democracy for the chief to tell a village, you have to vote for... Um, these four candidates and that's it, right? Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. that's fundamentally that that can actually do a huge disservice to the community if those four people just happen to be people who have, you know, family ties to the chief. You know what I mean? Yeah. So again, it goes back to like agency. Mm -hmm. There are points in time, you know, like religion also has a Mm -hmm. a big role to play in this as well too, Mm -hmm. because in some communities it's like the imam or the the, um, traditional um, healer or Mm -hmm. someone else or the priest or pastor who has a large sway and tries to tell a congregation, you know, you you have to vote this way or et cetera, et cetera. This is bad and that is good. But ultimately it's not, I, I wouldn't say that there are, contravening against each other, but it's really about letting people know that they do have a right to have independent thinking Mm -hmm. and their choices. And then when it goes back to the gender dynamics, for instance, you can boil it down to, you know, the father as the head of the household Mm -hmm. informing the family, this is the way that we're going to vote because I say so. And again, that could be voting against your interest if it's a candidate that really doesn't meet you know, the needs that you feel as an individual or as a community is there. But it goes back to dialogue and trying to break down these assumptions that we all have about one another or institutions. And when you can have a dialogue, and that means allowing everyone to have a seat at the table. Oftentimes, you know, when there are these opportunities to have exchanges of ideas, be it, you know, in a policy discussion, et cetera, who are the main speakers? It's the landed class. It's the men, the older men, right? You yeah. aren't allowed to participate. But, mm-hmm. you know, on the continent, we have a youth bulge. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I can't think of any country that doesn't have, I mean, the greater portion of the population in most of our countries is it's under uh, 35. By and large, like 30 mm-hmm. and under. Yeah. Exactly. Less, exactly. Right? Exactly. So, but systematically, it's that very group that's not being allowed to participate in the democratic process aside from casting ballots or trying to use youth to cause havoc around elections to prevent Mm -hmm. people from showing up at at, at the ballot box. And Mm -hmm. so it's really about education. So it goes back to capacity building. So letting people know what their rights are and then how do you make those actionable, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think we found, especially here in the U.S., if you take things for granted, it can be taken away from you, right? And so it's important to have the checks and balances and, you know, to make sure, hey, in this budget, like we need to have transparency in our national budgets. And so if you have, you know, X amount of money set aside for health and it says here there's supposed to be a clinic built in my community and it's been three years and it's never showed up, but... The person in charge of that has a brand new Mercedes Benz, et cetera, et cetera. That's a problem. And it's yeah. about transparency and holding people accountable. Right. Yeah. So that's a big part of it. That's a yeah. really big part of it. Yeah. So it's, it sounds like to your point, information is the foundation of it all. And so that information education loop is is the answer to progress, ultimately. 
Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. definitely is. And having support. And that, that's why having networks and trying to have allies that are outside of the usual suspects, right? Mm. Um, some people might not think, hey, what about this trade union group? What do they have to do with, um, I don't know, the, the health budget? But they do have a say in the health budget, you yeah. know, because the trade union represents maybe X percentage of, right. of all workers in any given field sure. and they have families and, you know, they yeah. need to get out there and get things done. And so they have a vested interest in this. And sometimes it's about telling groups that aren't normally part of the process that they should be involved and they do have a say. Mm-hmm. And this goes to LGBTQI groups as well, too, you mm-hmm. know, who are often the most marginalized of the marginalized on the mm-hmm. continent. Right. And just linking them up, like maybe more of you need to run for office. Maybe more of you need to speak up. You have to be supported as well, because if you're out there on your own and you don't have the support, you know, the the risks are higher. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So let me ask you my local speak question. So this is where we ask, we want to hear what you hear. So in in any of your experiences or if you're in your current daily endeavors, I ask my guests to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or or how you came to value it as global speak. I think for me, my local speak would be nothing for us without us. Mm. And, you know, that is... um, a statement that uh, the persons with disabilities community has used quite frequently to advocate mm-hmm. for their rights. But I think that applies in so many cases mm-hmm. where, um, again, like one person wants to speak for a whole group, never checked in with anyone, mm-hmm. <laughs> puts together policies, programs, etc., that ultimately don't work because you didn't involve the very people who are yeah, impacted stakeholders, by it. Exactly. And so that's something that drives me mm-hmm. um, in the work that I do is that nothing with nothing for us without us so that it just goes back to participation right. and um, agency. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to take, you know, all this talk of democracy and, and marginalized people. We're at a global, I want to say nearly catastrophe with the, the issues with Afghanistan right now. And so looking at the swift rise of the Taliban coming in and, and more so my, my concern and my eyes are turned to the idea that women are virtually disappearing from street and, and local life. What are some of your thoughts on what you see as the way forward with, I guess, global democracy or in global diplomacy in terms of communicating and creating partnerships, because we know war doesn't work. You know, like this is clear indication that you came and you decided you wanted to try to mastermind something new in a country that had, you know, sure, it was what it was, and now it is what it was. So what are some of your thoughts on where it went wrong, where where women, particularly where women, because that, that's to my heart. You know, I saw a, an image of, a wall, an advertisement being painted over of a woman. And my heart was like, oh my gosh, like I feel for that. What What are your thoughts? I mean, that says so much. And we're literally watching all of this unfold, you know, like in real time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, through social media and everything, I mean, like literally unfiltered. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it's, it's extremely heartbreaking. And Women are often like the canary in the coal mine, like how a country treats its women will tell you fundamentally how, how well it's put together, honestly, Um, because we are, we are the backbone. No matter what. Yeah. That's Um, like, we just don't get it. And no, absolutely. But they get it. They see that. And and that's why. Right. 
You know, that I mean, in reason. war, mm-hmm. oftentimes what the first thing that they do is they go after the women and children to mm-hmm. uh, demoralize, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the enemy, et cetera, right? Through rape yeah. and um, right. a bunch of other things. And mm-hmm. so that shows you that we still have so much work to do. Yeah. Like this, we're seeing the worst of it, like yeah. right now in the situation, right. but in many ways and shapes and forms, I mean, there are different manifestations of that mm-hmm. where- you know, if you're not allowed to run for office or you're, you know, constricted from speaking up or with female genital mutilation mm-hmm. or, you know, so many of these other things. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really hope that dialogue can happen. War is never the answer. And I, I think there's a saying in the diplomatic community, when diplomacy fails, you know, that's when conflict arises, right? And it, it's really about sitting down with people that you may you may not like, you might not respect, you might not care for. But if that doesn't happen, it's like we have to coexist somehow, mm-hmm. you know, whatever country we live in, whatever society. I mean, there are deep divides everywhere. But if we can't find a way to coexist, then these issues will continue to fester. And when you talk about the impact of colonization, um, it does have an impact in some of these places. I mean, like if you look at the continent, you know, with the Berlin Conference and, you know, um, you're putting groups together that... Yeah, that were never... Right. Yeah. And calling it a nation mm-hmm. and people view themselves as their ethnic group first and their their, their nation second. Right. Yeah. Um, and then there's these constant conflicts. But at some point we have to accept, OK, we're the nation of Ghana where, you know, we have I don't know how many ethnic groups. And, you know, what I do appreciate about Ghana, especially in any election that I participated in um, at the end of the day, there's been peaceful transitions yes. and yeah. people to a person were for the most part, we're like mother Ghana first. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I do not hear that everywhere where people, you know, put country first before mm-hmm. party, before mm-hmm. ethnic group, before anything else. And so I think that is, despite all the challenges that you described that are happening now in Ghana, um, that is something that I think can help like, right. your way forward right. if more people can get in line with that thinking. Right, right. Hum- human first. That's, that's my, my motto now is human first, you know, like... Yes. We're all humans. So the idea that because you're a man or you're an elder, that you are more, better, anything than this other human, you don't deserve as much water. You don't deserve as much air. You don't deserve as much vaccine, you know, like. Absolutely. These are, these are the, the issues that we're, we're even dealing with that are not being, unfortunately, exposed to a large degree in the Western media. And so, you know, hopefully in my work, in our work, we we start to raise the information veil for, for human things like first. That. I love that. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually going to bite that. So good, 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 good. So speaking of different ways of thinking, um, what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? So this is one that you can manage, imagine, or one that you know of. That's a tough one. I mean, for me, it I try not to self sabotage, and so oh, that's good. My hack is really to say yes even when I have hesitancy. Okay. And that that really has provided me with more opportunities, more engagements, and really helps to push myself like to the next level, like to get uncomfortable. Like you have to get uncomfortable mm-hmm. to learn and to get yeah. to the next level. And though just me personally, my first instinct is to say, no, let me think about it. But I think I find that when I say yes, and I try, even if I don't, you know, come out perfect at the end, there's always a good learning that happens with that. So that's the closest thing I have to a hack. That's a good one. Yeah. Just don't self, say yes. 
<laughs> it's like an open heart, you know, you just, yeah. oh, yes, open heart, open mind. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a, that's a good Absolutely. one. Yeah. I know you're a busy woman, so we're getting towards the end of our conversation, but I always like to ask a little bit more about the you that's not the worker, that's not the the one who's managing sub-Saharan Africa in elections. Okay. Uh, so tell me a little bit about, um, are you a reader, are you a watcher, or are you a listener? I'm a little of both. I, I used to be an avid, avid reader. So okay. I, out of all of it, I would say I'm a reader. But lately, I've also been going down a YouTube video hole. <laughs> okay, so well, YouTube is one of your favorites. So what are some of your favorite reads, and what are some of your favorite YouTube watches? Well, because I'm involved in a lot of heavy work, mm-hmm. I, I tend to go late when it comes to like YouTube things. Yeah. And so yeah. right now I'm following, you know, I love the Amber Ruffin show. Oh, I love it too. She's oh, great. That is like a, a laugh, a laugh, laugh-a-thon. Laugh, <laughs> yeah. Laugh, laugh, thought. And the, yeah. The piece. yeah. I love it. Uh-huh. So Amber Ruffin, I like fashion things. So okay. um you know, I like Karen Britchick, Angela Marshall, Cassie Thorpe, okay. and then DIY stuff. I like house decor things. Um, okay. And in terms of books, I mean, it really runs a gamut. And again, I try to not always have heavy topics, but I just finished reading Black Bottom Saints by Alice Randolph, mm. which was so fascinating. Like, that's the one book that I found myself Googling as I'm reading, like stopping mm. and then like. I, I didn't realize just the um, the added layers of complexity of these famous artists that came out of like the Midwest. And so it was really fascinating read for me. And I learned a lot. Um, and the autobiography of Cicely Tyson, which was so mm. motivational and mm-hmm. eye opening. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are two that I really, really enjoyed. Nice, nice, nice. Those are good. So again, folks, those will be in the show notes. You have links to those. And just a tip, I, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to my my um, listeners, but when you link to books that are recommended, it's an Amazon link. And if you buy that book through that link, then you are supporting local citizens. So keep that in mind as you click through the, the reads of our, our guests. So I just have a little, a Cape Verde question for you. So sure. take, I want you to take us a little bit there because you also speak Portuguese as, as one of your mother tongues. So that, that was your, was that your first language? It was Portuguese and Creole. Um, Creole. Because okay. Cape Verde, it's, it's an interesting African country in the sense of, it was almost a science experiment with the Portuguese as they started wow. doing their exploration slash conquest of the sure. continent. Right. Um, Cape Verde was really a depot for Africans that were then put on slave ships to head to the Caribbean and Mm -hmm. the U.S. and elsewhere. So um, it's a it's a mixed society. So Cape Verdeans have a lot of Portuguese in them as well as West African. But like the main the mother tongue in Cape Verde is called Creole. And it's a mixture of Senegambian languages. Ah, yes. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, both, but I don't, I'm not fluent in either because I've been in the U S since I was two and I just never, but I can understand and I can, I can get by. Okay. Nice. So tell us your favorite place in Cape Verde. So when it was, so those of those of us who want to visit one day, where would you recommend as a great place to, to chill out and, and get to know <sighs> the country? That's going to be a controversial point because <laughs> it's a small, <laughs> there are nine inhabited islands and people are Fiercely, like, you know, but if you really want like the history and culture, I would recommend the island of Santiago. That's the largest island. Okay. It's where the capital is, Praia, which means uh-huh. beach. Yes. Um, but of course, there are beaches on all the islands. Right. Islands. But that's where you have the old forts. 
Mm. There is a higher like tourism industry where you can mm-hmm. actually get like the history of Cape Verde and, and all of that. Um, sure. you know, it's also famous for having a lot of pirate attacks in the 14th and 15th centuries. And so mm-hmm. all of this old history and culture there. And there's a good art scene there too. Okay. But also like the other main capital is in Santiago in Mindelo, um, which is like the other economic capital of, of Cape Verde. And that also has beautiful beaches. Um, there's a huge festival, uh, Bahia de Gatos, that happens um, every summer. Okay. Um, Hopefully they're not doing it during the pandemic, but they might. Um, And so like, that's also a beautiful place, but there are a lot of direct flights from Europe and from the DMV area. Yeah. There's now some direct flights as well too, but you can't go wrong at anywhere you go. In Cabo Verde, we have this attribute that we call Mora Beza, which is Uh, just means, you know, like humanity, love, openness, and Cape Verdeans are always willing to talk and and share. Nice. I highly recommend that people visit. And you you are are representing for your country with your willingness to talk and share. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been great. This has been great. So listeners, this has been another episode of Local Citizens. You can catch us with new episodes every Tuesday at www.local citizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts another reminder share subscribe leave us a comment it helps people find us we want to be found we have good content here and um, as always bye for now